people buy companies and it confuses me because I think that they're so easy to start. All companies are built in three key areas, sales, finance, operations. Don't ever make long-term decisions with short-term issues or short-term thinking. Like many entrepreneurs, I'm not good at saying no to a good opportunity. I'm the problem there. My name is Mike Otis. I'm in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. I do, uh, as, as one of my sons like to say, Monopoly and Legos, construction and real estate development and rental. So I have technically four companies, three real estate holding companies, and then one, my, what I call my primary company, my day job, is a company that does commercial window and door projects that I started 20 years ago. And so we take the window and door portion of commercial construction jobs, office buildings, schools, apartment complexes, student houses your house, whatever, all those kinds of projects. That's what I do for a living. How did you end up getting into that? I really have been in windows and doors from one angle or another my whole life. My dad installed glass, or he was what's called a glazer, throughout his career. My family tends to have a natural bent in building things anyway, so it really... That fell to me. I got that bug. I remember as a little kid going to, on a Saturday morning, maybe going to help my, well, help my dad. I was probably in his way. But going to be with my dad on a window and door project he was working on or install some glass. One of them was a bank, I recall. So I just grew up around it my whole life. My dad started a small company at his house when I was a teenager. And he, I say small, meaning him alone, no employees, part-time, and shut it down for a few months and go away in the wintertime. So I was around it a bit, naturally took to it. I think my first job I actually took contracting for a customer where I was the contractor was re-roofing a shed a little ways down the road from where I lived and I was 13 years old. From being 13, you went to a New Tribes Institute, I'm looking at? That's true. I went to school for ministry. That was my education. To learn how to live out in the jungles with a primitive people group and learn their language and their culture and break it down into a written form and teach them reading and writing, translate the Bible into their language, all that stuff, establish a church. And then just, you know, one thing led to another and I never followed that path. Was all that in Michigan or where were you translating that stuff? Well, I went to school for it. It was in three different states and began in Jackson, Michigan, then in Pennsylvania for a year and a half, and then in uh, Missouri for six months. Wrapped up the training program, moved back home to figure out what I was doing next. Soon after my dad passed away, that was, uh, as I said, he had a small shop at the house. Middle of winter, a freak accident. I was living near home, so I was the guy to help my mom through that, which included finishing the jobs he was in the middle of doing so the customers could get their stuff. And then it became something a little different. It was in the spring, all the local residents would take all their storm windows and screens out of their cottages and stuff. And they would lean them against my dad's garage after my dad had passed away. My mom would come home and see a pile of windows that they intended for him to fix, not knowing he was dead. And she'd just break them. So what I did then is I said, well, mom, let me fix the windows. I'll, and I'm in my early twenties at this point. So I said, let me fix the windows. I'll take some money for the labor. I could use that. And then I'll give you the money for the glass because she needed to get rid of glass in the building anyway. And we did that for a little while, a couple of months. And then I ran out of glass and I picked up the phone and ordered more. And that was the moment I realized that actually had just sort of gone into business. What do you mean you ordered more glass? What, to put in these and give them back to the customer? 
yeah, I bought more glass for inventory so I could continue to fix people's windows. And that's why I've often said, I feel like my first business I fell into by accident. I, I didn't really intentionally say, I think I'll start a company. I just sort of restarted the company my dad had started and used the same name to honor him and continued that. And so I ran that company for, I don't know, 12, 15 years and then sold it thinking I'd had enough. Went to work for someone else for a couple of years in sales. And that was fine. They were a fine company to work for, but I just realized being an employee wasn't me. So then I started another company. Could you tell us about those years growing the business, I guess, taking over from your dad? Were you an only child? How was that being able to support your mother at that point? Well, I was able to help her. I wasn't supporting her financially. I was helping her through that difficult time. And I was not an only child of four of us. So three siblings. My older brother was out of state at the time. I don't know. It, was just, it fell to me because the others were all off doing other things. And it just really felt right. As I said, I kind of had an entrepreneurial bug when I was even a little kid selling candy bars in the high school or whatever. It was a very natural thing for me to do. It was simply a, an outworking of who I am. It's crazy. A lot of people are very, very thoughtful about saying, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start it. And here's what I'm going to do. And for me, I actually did evenings and weekends while I worked full time and had a real job. I was working 16, 17, 18 hour days and my boss fired me. I think that was probably the greatest favor that my boss did for me because I don't know if I'd have had the courage to do it. I was concerned whether I'd be able to have enough work to feed my family. And in the very first week I did, my dad had told me the area wasn't adequate enough, big enough to be able to support two families. Otherwise he sort of wished that I could work with him while he was still alive. But he said the area just couldn't ever support it. And so he was only a one-man operation and not even full-time. And it supported him and my mom. But after I started it over again, within a couple of years, I had quite a few employees and no education in business. In my early 20s, within probably five years of him telling me that the area couldn't support two people, I think I had about 20 people working in that same area, just covering a larger geography from that location. It really took off well. I remember my first goal was we need to do 30,000 sales the first year, 30,000. And my thinking was that's 15,000 in material, 15,000 in labor. So I get the labor because I'm doing the labor and then half of the materials would be markup. So then I would get that other 7,500. So I'd make 22,500. Now this is in the early eighties and I'm straight out of school and I'm just grunt labor on a construction job. So 22,500 was actually a pay increase from where I had been. So I thought I'd be, if I did 30,000 in sales, the first year we did 126,000. The next year we doubled that. And the year after that, we doubled it again. And it just kind of took off from there. Can you tell us about that? Hiring those people? Like you said, they were putting it against your mom's house. So was your garage right next to it that you worked on this class? The location was in essence my mom's garage. Yeah. I mean, it was that small. It was a, like the equivalent of a four stall garage. And I had half of it for a little shop where I was working. And I stayed there for just, I want to say it was a year or maybe two at the most. I think only about a year. And then I rented some space down the road for two years at a commercial location. And my question that I was trying to figure out is, did it make sense? I, at that point, I'd bought a home, owned a home. So did it make sense for me to work out of a commercial location or should I move this up? to my home. That was really the question. And the answer was, to me, seemed pretty clear. I did not want this thing in my house. I stayed in a commercial location two years later, bought some land, built a building and added to it and added to it and added to it like you do. So you did that for, you're saying about 13 years or right in between. And then why did you want to end up selling it? 
Well, actually, as sometimes happens in life, I was going through a divorce. My wife kind of uh, left the kids, left the family to me. And I, so I was a single dad, four kids at home. I just really wanted to focus on my kids. I didn't feel like I had the time, the bandwidth to take care of the kids full time and run the company. And emotionally, I was just so damaged from that experience that I just really wanted to, uh, wanted to focus on that. So I found an opportunity to sell it and did so. And, and in the end, it was probably one of the bigger mistakes life, but I tried. Why do you think that? Well, because the guy that bought it from me failed to mention he had no intention of paying me for it. He had a pretty good team of lawyers that his daddy was bankrolling, and he screwed me out of everything I had done for that time. It was over a million dollar turn of events, and I was in my mid-30s at the point, and I had to start over. By the time I was 35, I remember my goal was to be worth a million dollars by the time I was 40. And I had achieved that in my 30s. But by the time I was like 37, I was bankrupt and unemployed. So it was not a lot of fun to go through. Why do you end up going bankrupt? Because he not only didn't pay me for the company, he also didn't pay the payables. He didn't pay the, uh, he did collect the receivables. He didn't hesitate to do that, but he didn't pay the payables that those were against. He took company vehicles, two or three, which had loans on them were financing. He didn't make the payments on those. So they were repossessed. And all these people, the vendors, the auto suppliers, everybody was suing me to pay those debts that had been taken out in my name personally. Bottom line, the, the paperwork to sell the company to him was all wrong. His lawyers wrote it up and I was anxious enough to get out of the thing that I let him get away with it. Meaning I went by his paperwork that his attorneys drafted and my attorney advised me not to sign it. And I did anyway. And it was a stupid move. So I had all the right advice. I just didn't listen. As a result, he had my company. I was supposed to work for him, but within a couple of weeks, he decided to let me go. I had nothing I could take back. He had actually even emptied the building and moved it to a different location, which was the plan all along. But so it's not as though I could take the building back, take the stuff back and get back to work again. It had been totally dismantled. For someone who's trying to learn from that experience, can you tell us even what to look out for when you're going through that? I guess one of the things I learned through that, this might sound a little a little funny given the issues at play, but don't ever make long-term decisions with short-term issues or short-term thinking. I was concerned about where I was personally in that moment, but my decision had huge, huge long-term ramifications. I said I worked for someone else for a couple of years. Part of the reason was, and for filing bankruptcy, I would have had a very hard time starting a company until I got past two years. Once I hit the two-year mark, then I could actually begin to get back in the system and start going. Yeah. So, I mean, that was the thing about that particular timing, but it became pretty clear that I just needed to start a company again. And so I did. I guess I'm just trying to understand. So when he took all those assets, how are you still liable? It was just a paperwork made it liable. Did he close down the company? I just want to make sure we totally understand that before moving on. If you think about it, all those open accounts with vendors were taken out in my name. He is a part of the deal. He had to do three, four things. He could take the receivables, but he had to take the payables. He had to pay the payables because the receivables paid those. So it was about 400,000 in receivables at the time and about 400,000 in payables. So one would pay the other and he had an obligation to take all of that. And then there were about $2 million in open contracts that we were in the process of performing. So he took assignment on all those open contracts. Two of those open contracts were actually bonded by a bonding company. Now, in, in small business, you know what we all do is we all sign personal guarantees. I had personal guarantees with a bonding company. I had personal guarantees with the vendors. With the bonding company in particular, so this guy accepted assignment of all of the current or ongoing contracts that we're in the middle of, except the two that were bonded. Those two, he decided not to sign an assignment of. So he didn't, 
he didn't accept the responsibility to finish the job because what would happen the very next moment is the bonding company is now liable or obligated to finish the project. But of course, they're an insurance company. They're not a window company. Their response was they need to hire a window company to finish the project. Well, who's the best guy to do that? Him. He has all the records, the files, the employees, the materials, supplies, everything sitting in stock, ready to roll. They hired him to finish the contracts at whatever price he asked, and then they sued me for that money because I'm personally liable, personally guaranteeing the bond. With all those personal guarantees in place, that's why they were suing he and I both together, but I had no way to resolve those problems. He had an army of attorneys. My attorney at the time said, look, Mike, this guy is clearly defrauding you, ripping you off. He's destroying you. I mean, his objective, he practically, I think he didn't even tell me, was his objective was to make sure that I couldn't get back up again because he didn't want me competing against him in the industry. He did all of those things. Let me finish another thought. My attorney told me I've got a winnable case. All I needed was about $100,000 in legal fees that I didn't have because at that time, I, you know, I had sold this thing on credit on terms to him on paper. He gave me a 25 grand down payment and never made the very first payment. I had no ability to pay the attorney. So then the other thing he did is he actually went and met with my banker or he sent his vice president to meet with my banker to say to the banker, hey, by the way, Mike's having some financial problem and you might want to know about that. I thought you should know. So you might want to consider calling his notes because at the time I also had a fair amount of real estate investments. And so my banker called the notes on my real estate notes real estate loans and forced the sale of all the real estate that sold, would you believe, almost to the dollar for the amount of debt on the real estate so that the bank was made whole and I walked away with nothing and still had hundreds of thousands of dollars of liabilities hanging over my head because of all the personal guarantees I'd signed to vendors and I'd signed with the bonding company. And so I was being sued by numerous people and I just couldn't defend it. Had you met this guy before? Did he have something against you? He wasn't having an affair with your ex-wife or anything, was he? <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. I had not actually met him until we began doing this, but I was aware of him. I knew of him in the industry. I wasn't aware of a bad reputation. I didn't know him well enough. As he and I talked through in the early conversations about the idea, we talked about merging our companies into one. Then he just said, more he thought about it, he'd like to be the sole owner. I was okay with that as long as he was paying me enough money to make that happen. He was the kind of guy that really endeared a lot of trust, I guess. I just immediately trusted him, felt good about him. And I guess that's in essence sort of the definition of a con man, isn't it? who builds confidence. So I had a lot of confidence in him and who he was and, and it was wrongly placed. Yeah, that's how it all fell apart. Well, let's talk about being an employee for those couple of years and then jump in, I guess, maybe is that to whatever you're into today. I was an employee and the first thing it is took a job. Now my company was a, a full service glass shop and then I moved, oh, I don't know, 45 minutes away to two Grand Rapids. I had been living in a rural area prior to that. I moved to Grand Rapids and there was a local or a full service glass shop that was looking for a manager. So, well, shoot, I can do that. I didn't realize full service to them meant 90% auto glass and full service in my company that I had sold had meant 10 percent auto glass and I hated doing auto. So I went in, into that and out of it very quickly. I didn't do my homework. Then I took a job in sales to help a company build a window door division and something they had just purchased a, a, another company and took a job to help them build that division. So that was a real success for me. I enjoyed it. They were great people to work with. I worked there for a couple of years. And one of the ideal things for me in that situation is I could 
work out of my home office, the same office I'm sitting in right now talking to you. That gave me the kind of flexibility that truly fit my entrepreneurial spirit. It's not like I went to a factory and you know moved widgets on an assembly line for eight hours a day or anything like that. And helping them start this new division and kick that thing off and uh, the main primary focus on sales and marketing with how I'm wired, it was a really good fit. But being an employee wasn't a great fit. And after a couple of years, a lot of talks with my wife and I had been married at that point. At that point now, my wife that I married uh, had four kids and I had four kids. We blended a family together with eight kids. At the time we got married, seven were teenagers. So there's quite a story in all of that. And we just felt like it was time to start a company. And part of it was that, you know, I just gone through bankruptcy. She was not a wealthy person when I met her. She'd been a single mom for some time. So that has a story too. I just realized, look, I'm going to have to work a lot of hours to provide for these eight kids. The idea behind starting a company was what if I could find a way to work with the kids in a company instead of work away from them? Could I possibly provide for them while working with them, spending time with them and teaching them a work ethic and teaching them a skill and a trade as they go through those teenage formative years and college years? And so that's what we did. And it just proved to be a a real win-win all the way around. So our intention was this time, keep it a small company out of our house, family focused. The purpose of the company was provide for our family. That was it. My kids are all, their last name is Otis. My stepkids, their last name is O'Brien. Our family was kind of joking and referred to as the double O clan. And so we started our company and named it double O Craftsman or double O Supply and Craftsman was the initial iteration of the company name. Today, we just refer to it as double O. So the company was literally named after our family. That was great. It was a lot of fun during those days. They reached a point where the kids had kind of all grown through the company because now that's been 20 years ago, started it. The kids had kind of all grown through it. We have three working there now, but it's not, you know, I don't work personally with them. The company's grown them. And our conversation about 10 years ago was, well, so now what should we do? Keep doing this or what do we do? And we decided to intentionally grow it. And so we laid out a plan to grow it and said, let's do that. And so today it's a much larger company. It's still not big means, but about 35 employees. This year, about six and a half million in sales. It's gone well, but just in a very different way. It's no longer located in the house. Could you tell us about doing that, laying out that plan? And were you doing it part-time while you're doing the windows and door sales? Just tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. Some of the details of building it up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's the main thing we want to listen to. And like those entrepreneurs who are listening, want to learn from. Okay, sure. I'm a firm believer in starting from zero. I see people buy companies and it confuses me because I think, but they're so easy to start. Why would you do that? Anyway, that's just my personal bent, but I'm definitely a firm believer in bootstrapping. I think it's critical. And what I mean by that is literally starting from nothing and building it up to something. Always earn more than you spend, right? It's that simple. Earn it first, spend it second. I'm not the kind of a guy to start a company with like a staff of six people and offices and and all these expenses and have investors come in or something. I'm the kind of guy to start a company from nothing with pennies. So when I started this company, what I actually did is took a home equity loan of $20,000. So we can start this company on $20,000. But the one thing that I had in this company, I didn't have in the first one is now at that point, like 40 years old, I am knowledgeable and experienced and have a lot of contacts in the industry. When I started my first company, I knew nothing. (laughs) Um, It really was helpful. I did start at part-time in a sense. I incorporated it three years or two years before I quit my full-time job. It's about the time I actually started my full-time job. I wasn't selling window deals at that point because that would have been competing against my employer and that wouldn't be right. But I began doing some residential remodeling on the weekends or for friends and family, small things like when we reached that point where we felt like, yeah, we really can do this and it will work and the numbers will work. Then I quit my job and the very next day I had my company up and running. And in fact, I actually, I think maybe out of paranoia from some of my prior financial experience, 
experiences. I had a couple of pretty significant contracts I signed like the day before I quit my job. I was already had some sales lined up and jumped in right away. And in this situation, I mean, I always had a vision for something a little bit more. So within the first year, I had a few employees in hand already and began to hire some people that I knew from the industry. It was a quicker ramp up this time around, but it was based on that experience and having a little more knowledge. Now, I understand that most of your listeners are students who are in school. They're going to be in a better place than I ever was because I didn't go to school for business at all. I just had so much I needed to learn and I just learned it all the hard way said initially, you're just kind of doing home improvements on the side. Then did you just get into just class? Can you give us more details on that? Well, we said in day one, I remember saying double O supply and craftsman began. I mean, as I say, I bounced around a little with the initial iteration of the name, but at times we referred to it as double O craftsman. The reason is day one, we said we are going to do residential remodeling projects for friends and family because I wanted to keep it small. But I had spent so many years in the window industry at that point and people knew me and even my past employer, when when I left them, I was very intentional about turning over all of those initial contacts and everything to a guy who was going to take my place, said, you need to pick up these relationships and run with them. But in some cases, and, and by the way, to be clear, the contracts I inked that I brought into my new company were not contracts that that company would have done. To me, that was important. They were the kind of projects that that, that company would not have handled. I wasn't going to in any way walk away with business from my past employer. That would have been unethical. What I did is I said, we are a residential remodeling company in the beginning, but almost within minutes, so to speak, we also became a window company. We did some of both of that for a time, doing some residential remodeling with our primary marketing focus, saying we are window and door distributor. And when friends called and said, hey, can you renovate a basement or a bathroom or a kitchen? Well, we would end up doing it. Now, uh, we are very, very black and white saying, look, we do one thing. That's it. It's so critical to do that. And like many entrepreneurs, I'm not good at saying no to a good opportunity. I'm the problem there. Uh, my employees are great, but I'm the problem in that I'm the guy they always have to remind, hey, we don't do that. Stop it. Today, what's the one thing you do then? Yeah, windows and doors, glass and glazing. You might think of that as more than one thing. If it's on a building and it's got glass, we do it. There's a technical term that many people don't know. It's called the fenestration industry, which is a Latin word that goes back to windows and doors or openings in buildings. That's what we do. We do residential windows and doors, commercial windows and doors, some of the the other industry-specific terminology, storefront, curtain walls, so just large runs of aluminum and glass, fabricate all the aluminum in our shop. Windows, per se, are kind of a different product in that that's a product that's manufactured by in a factory somewhere, we buy it, take it out to a project and install it or modify it. In some cases, even just distribute windows. So we'll buy them from a manufacturer, sell them to home build, but everything just windows and doors. What was your role when you did Double O and what is it today? Can you tell us a little bit more about growing company, the hardest things you've learned along the way, I guess, kind of the second time around? That's a great question. When I began this company, and I think a great way to build any company is I was everything. I was day one, I was the only guy. I did bring on some people pretty quickly, but I still was the only salesman, the only project manager, and I did all the payroll. I did the accounting, bookkeeping. I did everything. And so growing a company, for me is look at those things that don't fit me as well and hire those out. Eventually, I brought on somebody to handle the finances and I gradually began to bring on project managers. And initially, day one, I brought on people with craftsmen to help me out on job sites, but I was out installing windows and doors and working on buildings and doing, well, climbing up on a roof and re-roofing a house or whatever needed done. 
on. I was out doing those things, and that's what you do initially. There's no greater labor cost in my industry than when the owner's out there doing it himself, and yet he doesn't really take a bigger paycheck because of it. Keep your costs low. Keep your own personal revenue as low as possible. Build the thing up. Get the thing financially secure before starting to take on overhead or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, uh, some people said, how do you grow grow your company? And, and I remember thinking at one point, like a good answer to that question is hiring the next strategic position or person, which often meant getting myself really, really busy, working and getting the point I'm working 70, 80 hours a week again, hiring somebody to take half of my job. Then I get down to a reasonable lifestyle, get really busy again over time. And then I hire somebody to take half my job again. And I just keep cutting myself in half. Now then to the point that over time I became nothing but sales and project management. I hired a sales team. I had a sales team, about five people working under me. One moment that was really significant for me in that I was the sales a sales manager, and the CEO. Those are kind of the three hats I was wearing for a couple of years. I was selling and managing as much business as all the rest of the team together. So me, and then I'm doing more than five people. And in that moment, I realized, wait a minute, and I don't know why this didn't hit me sooner. Any idiot would have seen it, I think. But I was like, wait a minute, I'm their sales manager. I'm doing it. Clearly, I know how. They're not doing it. They're good people. But it must be maybe they don't know how. I'm their sales manager. Therefore, it's my fault, not theirs. I was always so frustrated. Like, why don't they get it? Well, I was the guy that was supposed to teach them. And so in that moment, I made a decision that I was no longer going to sell and manage anything. I said, you know what? I will not handle another project in this company. And instead, every time a customer called me and wanted us to get involved in a project, I said, no problem. We can do that. I grabbed the, the appropriate person with the experience in that particular type of product or work. I took them with me and I turned that opportunity over to one of those other individuals. In that moment, our sales that year, our sales went up, I think, 160%. It was when I got out of the way. I was a real roadblock. I needed to recognize that. It's easy, at least for me, it's been easy when I build the company the way I build it with me doing everything and gradually other people taking on more things. I've often felt like, wow, you know, but I'm, I don't understand why they aren't as good as me or something like that. Well, me, it was my attitude that was the problem. When I began to realize, hey, these are good, talented, skilled people and I'm an obstacle in their success, then I got out of the way and then tried to become a key helper for their success. And that just made all the difference. So then I was, at that point, my role was sales manager. And what year was this? Sorry, just to make sure we keep control. Of the right. Timeline. Yeah. Well, we bounce around a bit over the last 20 years. No, that was probably five years ago. And since then, by the way, we've been on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing privately held companies in the nation for three years in a row. That was a result. That growth was a result of me getting out of the way, killing my pride and arrogance and recognizing that I'm not the best guy for every job in this company. And in fact, I'm a problem. From then on, I sort of became sales manager and CEO. I still touch sales more than I touch any other thing. But at this point, sometimes refer to myself as corporate fat. I strive to just really stay out of everybody's way so everybody can be successful. They will be successful when I leave them alone and you know hire the best people and leave them alone and let them do their job. With Double O, has there ever been a time where you thought you were going to have to close this company? I know 07, 08, maybe that was difficult for a lot of the construction industry. Was that difficult for you during that point in time? 
Yes. At that point, our business was still located in our home. It had been around for a while. We were just about talking about we need to get a commercial building and serious about this. Because of my past financial uh, failures, I was really paranoid about taking on overhead. So when the crash hit and it hit construction really hard, our company is still in our home. And I remember saying in those days that we have every reason to be the last man standing in this entire industry because our overhead is so low. And that wasn't totally true because our sales also wasn't as high as it should have been. But Nonetheless, our overhead was low. We stayed real lean and mean. We had created a very aggressive growth plan to attack. And then we just didn't really execute on it too much. We focused primarily on survival and growth to a point. So during the recession, when the the construction industry in this area dropped in half, half of all jobs were immediately eliminated. We did not let go of one person. We continued to grow. We just grew small, grew a small amount, 10, 15% during the time. We were able to survive well. It wasn't an easy time, but we we got through it okay. And now we're in a sense, we're still suffering from that time because that's the creation of the labor shortage in construction and skilled trades. Half of those people, sometimes say a good bit of them moved to Texas because they were in kind of a boom for a while there on construction. And then a number of them became truck drivers because that was also a, a big thing that's going on at that. But it was a tough time. I didn't think we needed to shut the company down, but I definitely could see that we might have had to shrink it a bit. But fortunately, we were blessed to not have to do that. And we were able to keep everybody's jobs, keep everybody fed. It was a good thing. We got through it just fine. 10 years in your silver hand from your home, did you have employees outside the family members? Oh, yeah. How are you able to run that? Just describe that a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, the in the home part, first off, we have eight kids. At one point, we had 10 bedrooms in this house. One of the things we did about two years into the company, I remember I hired my brother and I said to him, I said, you know what? You can come in. Now, he was hired as estimator and project manager. I want you to have, have you come to work for me. He'd worked for me in my prior company. And I said, your very first responsibility will be to build us an office in our basement. We literally moved a hill, knocked out a basement wall, made it a walkout, totally separate entrance that you accessed even off of a separate driveway. So though it was in our house, there's a shop also on the property when we bought it. So it was in our house, but it was really quite separated. So it's not as though we had employees wandering through our house a lot, though they did some. There was a, there was a mutual door that joined between them. So we had to have a rule that said no employees upstairs until after 10 a.m. <laughs> that makes sense. Can you talk to us about having kids in the business? Because what happens if, as an entrepreneur, hiring kids to be in the business sounds like obviously that's what you wanted. But talk about some of the difficulties and maybe some of the benefits that you had doing that. Well, one of the real difficulties is what do you do when one of your kids is just not doing their... Yeah, we've had to deal with a couple of our kids that were a problem. One of the things that we can do today that works out well because the company's gotten big enough is I can say to my kids, look, you can work here, but you work for somebody else and they have absolute full and complete authority to fire your butt if they need to. One thing I've given our kids, I think the only one thing I've given them is an opportunity when they come home from college, if they want to work, we've got work for them. So anytime any of the kids have ever said, hey, I need a job, can I work? The answer has really always been yes. And we've been able to. Now we have seven sons, by the way, one daughter and our sons work in construction uh, in those days for us. So it's pretty easy to put them to work on job. It wouldn't be as easy if we were putting them to work and say, okay, you're going to now be a project manager when they don't have an out. So yeah, we had plenty of outside employees outside of the family. It was never only our family. Uh, even in the very first year, we hired some outside. I tried always to put them under someone else. And, you know, we're just blessed with some really good kids that do work hard. And, and I think that if you were to interview the other employees that our kids work with, they would say they're a positive contributor to the company. 
What's been one of the biggest turning points in the company to help you all expand out of the home and, and in general? A couple of key things that happened. I have a friend who's the um, was president of a multi-billion dollar company, and now he's chairman of the board still in a kind of a semi-retired state. And he and I were talking about business one day, and in that case, it was a church context. He was saying, look, if the church is going to be relevant, it must get more engaged in career and business and helping people with that, because that is the biggest part of anyone's life. So how can the church sit off to the side and not talk about that? So we're having this conversation. And I said, well, here's an opportunity to put your money where your mouth is. I said, I need some advice. And I said, and all I'm asking the guy for is I said, I just, do you have a book you would recommend? Because I'm trying to figure out this growth thing and trying to sort out what that's like and how I do this. And organizational structure was definitely a weakness for me. So how do I do that? He said, actually, a great way to go is he said, organizational psychologists are available to come in and spend time with you. But then without even taking a breath, he says, but they're really expensive. He volunteered to come into our company and interview every person in our company. He spent at least a couple of days, maybe 20 hours, that this guy who's chairman of the board of a billion dollar corporation spent 20 hours interviewing my staff in my basement, or at least I should say eight hours interviewing and then probably total of 20 because then he took that information, wrote up a report, gave me some insights. He pointed out something to me and, and your students are going to laugh because I could not have said this as succinctly as he said it, even though it's practically something you'd learn in kindergarten. All companies are built in three key areas, sales, finance, operation. Okay, makes sense. I'm following, right? He said, you need somebody to head operation. He said, that's my recommendation number one, because I was focused on sales and sure we had guys out there doing what we sold, but we didn't have an operations manager leading them. And sure we had somebody handling finance. I just thought, well, well they know what to do. They're professionals. Why don't they just do it? You know? So I had no manager in that area. So he said, look, you got to have a manager in that area. And then secondly, he said, you really have to give up this home-based business, little shop off to the side thing, get a real bill. Two pieces of advice. Within a month, I promoted a guy to operations manager and uh, that really helped. Suddenly some of the bumps in the road got smoothed out and then we began looking for a building and we bought a, a large building downtown. I mentioned to you earlier, 37,000 feet in an old warehouse. It had been a lumber warehouse at one point, beautiful facility, and yet it, was, it had been neglected and it was in a rough part of town. In fact, it's still in a rough part of town. And we renovated that and turned it back into something beautiful. We very intentionally went into that neighborhood, by the way because we wanted to go somewhere with our company where we would have it. We moved our company from being 20 minutes out of town in a rural area to being kind of right in one of the neighborhoods of the city. And what I realized that I didn't realize until that moment, because up to that point, we had been working out of our house and the little shop off to the side and bought another property around the corner that had a big barn and working out of there some and construction work. A lot of the guys just go right to job sites. And so we had some, you know, maybe an office staff of 10 in our house. We were scattered. And when we bought that building, there was this real sense of pride in the team that I could really sense and feel. Suddenly there was that sense of place and identity. It's like we knew who we were as a group of people because we had a place. Our place was confusing prior to that. I just didn't realize how important that was, which is ironic when you think about it because I helped build those places for a living. When you're buying that property, trying to think about from before, did you get a loan? Were you able to with the bankruptcy? Like how were you able to work that? Did you just save up enough money with the company? We actually bought that property three years ago. At this point, we're quite a few years in. And yeah, we got financing and the bankruptcies way in the past. It's a non-issue anymore. Basically, 17 years, you're out of your house. I mean, but even though it's at the bottom and it, it seems a little different. 
Isn't that something? And I would have done it much sooner until the recession hit. I start day one with the intention of being in the house. After a little while, it starts to grow and we have some somewhat different intentions and we start to consider, but I stayed in the house for like the first 10 years because I was paranoid because of my past. I stayed there for that long. I just don't want to build up overhead. I want to build up sales and finance and get solid. And before we spend any money on overhead, that was the first 10 years. And then I guess we're going to go ahead and do something. Let's get serious about a building and then the recession. So then I'm paranoid because of the recession. There were a few things in there that in my nature, I'm not a paranoid person. I'm exactly the opposite. I don't tend to let fears control me at all. It just in this situation, I kind of acted that way. So it took me so long to get out of downtown to to an awesome location. As we're closing down the interview, what's the biggest learning lessons or pieces of advice do you want to leave with the entrepreneurs who are listening? There are so, so many. But for me, and this just comes down to the way I build a company, I think it's important to earn it first, spend it second, and get out there and bust your butt and sweat and work 80 hours a week. It's The old joke is, well, it's cool. I own my own company. Therefore, I can work half days and I get to pick which 12-hour shift it is. But I think, you know what? Do 16-hour days and accept the fact that that's your life. And not only that, you would do 16 16-hour days for half the money that you would have done an eight-hour day, and it's okay. Do that because what an entrepreneur is, is betting on is that payoff someday out there in the future. I own a lot of stuff. I have a lot of assets. My net worth on paper is significant, but I still take a very small paycheck to this day because I can live on that, and it works. I'm not going to draw it. For me, it's not about how much I earn. I'm not going to draw more money than I need. For me, it's about how much we get to hang on to that we can then manage to keep growing the company and growing the real estate holdings and developing you know, something of significance. I guess that's what I would leave them with is don't focus on that paycheck. Focus on working their butts off for a very long time and just nose to the grindstone and stay at it until they can really, it becomes really, really apparent that they can afford to do something more. We appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. One last thing, what do you see for your future as a company in general? We have an amazing team of people. One of the things we began to do in the past year, again, another conversation, is utilize the principles of the great game of business. In other words, open book management. Uh, Possibly that term or organization is familiar to some of your listeners, but open book management. So we've two years ago, we began to just open our books up once a week. We meet with our team and we're really educating them on business. My hope is that we simply continue to train, develop, mentor, and teach our people, help them develop as individuals. I think it would be awesome if I could teach them so much about business that they help our business be successful and maybe even decide to start their own and I can help them do it. I think that would be fun. Our hope is that maybe the next step is if we can get that company up to about 10 million or so that we look at doing an ESOP and in essence selling that company to the employees that help to build it. I think that would be awesome to me. It's, I don't know, there's, there's purpose in that. There's heart in that. If they can end up owning the company that they built and then there'll be a day that I'll step away. In fact, now I go into the office three days a week and in the next 12 weeks, I think I'm traveling well over 50% of the time, not necessarily related to the company. My hours have reduced now. I've got a great team there doing it. I want to reward them. And then our kids are getting to the point that they're looking at starting companies and I want to help them. As I work less in that company and maybe even sell it to the employees and just help guide and coach, then I can help some of our kids build their companies. Thank you for coming on. What's the best way for someone to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview? Email is really the best way. All right. Well, that'll be in our show notes. And thanks again, Mike, for coming on. Absolutely. Good chatting. Hey there. If you made it to this point in the podcast, well, we know you're a loyal listener and we really appreciate that. Hopefully you've learned a lot from all these interviews and we've enjoyed bringing them to you. 
But right now, we have some serious business to discuss. We're at a crossroads with the podcast. As of today, we're averaging a few thousand downloads per episode. In order for us to keep producing this podcast, we need to average above 10,000 downloads per episode. And we need to hit that mark within the next few months. So here's my ask. If you felt like you've gained any value from any of our past episodes, would you please just take a few minutes to share the podcast with others? How could you share? Well, you could text a friend that listens to podcasts and maybe tell them about our show or post on Facebook about millionaire interviews. Or maybe if you're a Reddit lover, you can post in the business or entrepreneurship section or maybe even the podcast thread there. Or maybe you could share your favorite episode on LinkedIn. And last but not least, if you enjoy sending email, maybe you could email a group of entrepreneurs or people that you think could benefit from listening. Me personally, I just ask people to listen to episode one, and then if they like it, then go ahead and subscribe, because you'll probably like some other episodes as well. So feel free to share it any way you want. And if every listener right now just got us one more subscriber, then we'd almost be to our goal overnight. So what if we don't hit that mark? Well, we're going to have to eventually shut down the podcast. As much as my team and I have enjoyed bringing you these interviews, we eventually have to make money from this production. So again, if you've gotten any value from the podcast and want to see more episodes in the future, then please take a moment to share our podcast. We'd really appreciate it. And if you have any other suggestions on how we can improve, grow, or monetize the podcast then feel free to email me at austin at millionaire-interviews.com.